0: That's right! We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Freedom Books, Flowers, and the Moon. I'm Ros Deneen. Last year, the author Jesmyn Ward became the first woman to win the prestigious National Book Award for Fiction, twice. First in 2011 for her post-Katrina novel Salvage the Bones, and again last year for Sing Unburied Sing, a remarkable novel which has won fans and praise from none other than President Obama. It's a work of lyrical beauty in which ordinary people fill mythic roles. In the TLS, our reviewer Kate Webb declared that in Jesmyn Ward we have an important new voice of the American South, one developing perhaps into the 21st century's answer to William Faulkner. Fiercely partisan, yet unillusioned. Her command of politics and idiom is impressive. But perhaps what is most striking is Ward's sustained and clear-eyed attention to people who, when noticed at all, are more usually consigned to a novel's periphery. Here, they take center stage and are depicted with the kind of piercing clarity born of love. Earlier in the year, I met up with Jesmyn to talk about the collection of essays she'd edited, The Fire This Time, which you can hear on the TLS podcast that was released on April 26th. I began by asking Jesmyn about her first novel, Where the Line Bleeds. Jesmyn says that in that book she protected her characters, so I asked her whether she thought she'd been slowly removing those protections as she continued to write.
2: I think that I became aware of the fact that the... That... Protecting my characters was a problem before I began working on *Salvage the Bones*. So after I wrote my first novel, *Where the Line Bleeds*, Hurricane Katrina happened, and I think that that was the thing that um, that made me like very aware um, of the fact that peop the kind of people that I write about. Often lead very difficult lives, you know, and 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 so that not only do they have to, you know, do they live in a country where they are, you know, systematically silenced and you know and where they are, uh, um, you know, discriminated against and you know where there's so many institutions that are designed to make them fail, but then on top of that, then they also have to deal with natural disasters, right? You know, they live in a place where every summer they face hurricanes which will, can completely you know, change the landscape and also threaten the lives of their loved ones. And so I think that, that Hurricane Katrina, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, right, and the fallout in New Orleans, the response that I saw in the national conversation about Hurricane Katrina and about people who didn't evacuate for the storm, I think that all of that like made me very aware of how um, yeah, of, of, of how difficult life is for so many of the people that I write about. And so, I and I realized when I look back on Where the Line Bleeds, that part of what I had been doing while I wrote that novel was I'd come across a moment where, um, a moment of like great dramatic import, right, or, or importance. And I thought, well, you know, something dangerous can happen in this moment or something um, you know something, uh, you know, like you know these characters in this moment where things can go very badly, very quickly. But yet, I would always pull them away from that precipice, and I wouldn't let whatever the bad thing that could happen, I wouldn't let that happen to them, because I loved them too much. And so, as I like thought, I thought, and I thought about all those moments and where the line bleeds, and I realized that I had that there was a certain amount of dishonesty there. You know that I was being dishonest because I wasn't um, like reckoning with the kinds of lives that my characters lead, you know? And I realized that it with because I was planning to write about, you know, a poor family facing Hurricane Katrina, that I had to be honest about the circumstances of their lives, you know? Like, I really do think that it was Hurricane Katrina that clarified all of that for me. And and that, that lesson is something that I tried to take with me into each project.
1: So you lived through Katrina yourself. Was it a difficult decision to move from that moment of, of, of living through something to realizing that you were going to start working on it and fictionalizing it?
2: Yes. Um, you know I didn't write for two years after Hurricane Katrina happened. Um, I did, well, let me amend that. So I wrote one short, and I wouldn't even call it an essay because there's nothing introspective about it. It was just it was more like a diary entry that I wrote. Um, it was like fifteen pages just about my experience in Katrina, so that I wouldn't forget what had happened, right? And so uh, it was basically I wrote an account of the of of the events. Um, but I didn't write anything, any new fiction, any short stories, you know, no novel beginnings, anything. I didn't write any really any serious creative nonfiction for two years after Hurricane Katrina hit. So it really, it took me a while to like, um, to sit with that experience, you know, and to really realize like how it had affected me. You know, I mean, like Esh and, you know, hurt her fam- the family in, in Salvage the Bones, we were out in the middle of the storm. You know, my we took shelter in my grandmother's house because my mom actually lives in a mobile home, right? And it's unsafe to stay there, especially in Category Five hurricanes. You're always supposed to leave them um, because they're not they're not well constructed enough to like withstand those winds. And so we went to my grandmother's house, and because Hurricane Katrina was such a large, um, slow moving, like powerful storm, it made it pushed the storm surge inland so far into areas that hadn't really flooded before and my grandmother's house began to flood in the middle, middle of the storm um, and we didn't, you know, like the characters in Salvage the Bones we didn't want to climb into the attic because my, my grandmother's house is only one story and so we didn't want to climb into the attic because we didn't know how high the water was going to rise and we didn't want to drown in the attic um, but unlike the, char- the characters in um, Salvage the Bones You know, so we didn't climb into the attic. We just went out into the middle of this. We swam out into the storm surge and we ended up sitting in a in a truck in the middle of a field um, For the for nearly the entire duration of the storm Um, Because we couldn't get we were trying to like get away from the storm surge to free flee the storm surge and get to Um, the local church because my grandmother had a key to the hall at the local church the local catholic church and so we were trying to get there but we couldn't get there because the road was the road was entirely was like everything was flooded so we just we couldn't get through the water um and so we pulled into a field and we like huddled in our cars um and we watched the hurricane rip the landscape away. I mean, it was like uprooting trees and breaking power, power poles and power lines and they were whipping through the air. And it was, I remember sitting in the truck and thinking, we're going to die because the wind is gonna flip the truck over because because the wind would gust and it would, it would pick up the side of the truck and the truck would tilt and then it settle again. And then we were refused shelter by like, by the white family who owned the house that sat in the middle of the field that we were sheltering in. They came out in the middle of the storm to check their cars because they parked their cars and they had work trucks and stuff in the middle of this field. So they came out to check all that and they saw us sitting in our cars and then in our trucks because we were sitting in two trucks in the middle of the field. They saw us sitting in our trucks and they and they came over and um, and they asked us how we were and when they looked in the truck there were six of us in the truck to my elderly grandparents my my mom my stepdad me and my pregnant sister she was clearly visibly pregnant she was like 5 6 months pregnant and they were like oh are y'all okay <laughs> and i don't know what we i don't even think we said anything because we were so we were in shock and then they said oh well we don't have room for y'all in the house but you can stay in this field until the storm passes so they wouldn't even let us come inside and stand um and then that was it. Then they left us Then they went back inside and we sat outside in the trucks until the storm surge like receded enough so that we could, you know, drive along the road. And we only got, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the mile d- down to like the first intersection and um, where we saw because we there was a big group of people in my grandmother's house and we'd been separated like in the middle when we came when we first um like came out of the house and into the storm. Um, so anyhow, it was a very traumatic experience. And like the reality of being aware that that a natural disaster, so something that you have no control over, can not only like change the very landscape that you live in, remake it, right, in a matter of hours, but then at the same time, they can also threaten the lives Of everyone that you love and do that in in a matter of hours I think that was a really hard thing for me to understand and for me to grapple with and so I didn't write um, yeah for like two years and then after the storm um, and so I just had to sit with that and like come to grips with and accept it I think and then also um, I think that I saw people beginning to rebuild, and I think that that made a difference too, because I I thought back to the fact that, you know, like my mom, when she was a child, and my grandmother was like a young adult, or an adult, they lived through uh, the last big hurricane that hit in the 1969 Hurricane Camille, you know, and for them, like, that must have been a very traumatic experience, and they sort of learned the same lesson that I think that we did in Katrina, but then, over a matter of you know 25, 30 years, like they rebuilt. And so I think that like being aware of that history, right of um, you know, people in the area that I come from of them like living through these traumatic events, but then still rebuilding afterwards and like recreating community and reclaiming family, you, know, and, and, and nurturing this landscape and being a part of this landscape, I think that that realizing that gave me a sense of, realizing that that was possible gave me a sense of of hope and um and i think allowed me to come back to the page
1: and then you did with salvage the bones your characters live through hurricane katrina mm-hmm. you have a teenage character who's pregnant mm-hmm. you have this absent father who's like this sort of noah figure mm-hmm. and it's this incredible it's this lyrical biblical countdown to the hurricane mm-hmm. And in general your style is very lyrical, it's very poetic. Mm. And this is at a time when a lot of the books gaining attention, a lot of the books that we see on our pages are written in this really sparse mm. prose. Is it, is it a decision for you to write in this style or is this what your subject matter is calling out for?
2: I think there's a little
1: bit of both
2: happening. Like I think that when I first fell in love with language and with reading, because I was a reader first, right, before I was a writer, that that was one of the things that made me fall in love with language, right, or made me fall in love with reading, was like the beauty of language, right, and what um, a writer who employed figurative language and employed it well could accomplish on the page and how they could make me feel when I read their work Um, and how there was almost something like transcendent about reading work like that that did that. So I think, you know, because that's what I love about the written word, right? That that's how I want to express myself and that that it, it seems to come naturally to me. But I also think that because I, because I write about very difficult subject matter, that it almost feels like I have to use that sort of language. You know what I'm saying? That I have to, that my language has to be poetic in some sense because it helps the reader bear the subject matter. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I'm, I think there's a combination of the two happening. Although it's interesting because, you know, I feel like I've had a lot of schooling around Writing, right? I mean, I completed an MFA program in fiction. I've done, I've, I've, you know, completed a. I I was a Stegner fellow at Stanford, and so I've studied writing, you know, the craft of writing, um, a lot. I've been in many um, workshops, and it's creative writing workshops, and so it's, and you know, in those workshops, I mean, the, you know, I was. I feel like p- one of the things that I was taught, um, and one of, and the feedback that I got, you know, over and over again about my work, was um, was it was in regards to, like, like was regarding my language, right? I mean, people sometimes people find it problematic in workshops, right? And and I think because you know the general sentiment um, or the or the how do I say this the the way that writing is taught now is that, um, you know, is that the language should be spare, right? Is that you should, you know, err on the side of caution when you're using figurative language, that you should avoid adverbs, avoid avoid adjectives, you know, that, you know, is is, is anything really like, really like anything else, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the kind of feedback that you get in the writing classroom. And so it's funny that even now when I'm, you know, sometimes when I flip, when I open my books and I'm... You know, I might read from them, you know, if I'm preparing to give a reading or something like that. There's this little sort of residual voice from all my writing workshops and classes in my head that I have to silence because I'll begin to critique my work with that rubric, you know, like with mm-hmm. this, you know, with that rubric, like the rubric of the classroom, right, mm-hmm. that that really pushes back against flowery language. And But I don't know, I,
0: I have to write the way that I write, so yeah. that's what I do. <laughs> Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Now coming to Sing Unburied very Sing. Mm-hmm. It's a ghost story. Mm-hmm. It's about the love between small siblings. Mm-hmm. It's about people trying so hard to form a family mm-hmm. together. It's about addiction. It's mm-hmm. about parchment prison. Mm-hmm. All of these things are incredibly powerful mm-hmm. for the reader. Which of these things for you came first when you were putting this book together? Mm-hmm.
2: JoJo came to me first and he you know he's the 13 year old mixed-race boy at the center of the book there was something about his character and his experience right I was really curious about what it would be like for him to grow up um, as a as a mixed-race boy who's very aware of the fact that when strangers see him they don't perceive him as a mixed race they perceive him as black right and so i was really interested in what a coming of age would be like for a boy like that in the modern south and in you know in the in in the america like that we see right now right um because i thought that he would be sort of struggling with issues of identity and really um really intimate ways because he's, he comes from a mixed family, right? Because his, you know, his mom is black, his maternal grandparents are black. They are the ones who've raised him, right? So they have really, really informed his sense of self and, and really taught him how to think about what it means to be black in the South and black in America. Um, and then of course, like the white side of his family, unfortunately has, taught him about that too, but mainly in their absence, right, because they refused to acknowledge him and his sister um, and his mother. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, I mean, he, so he came to me first, and so I was really, I guess, just um, interested in, uh, in, in what it would be like for him, you know, to confront this world and to figure out what it means to be. A man in this world, and a black a black man in this world, and a black boy, you know, in in America. And then, as I begin to like write my way into his experience and into his story, and and fig and begin figuring out like who Leonie was, who his mother was, and who his sister was, and who his grandparents were, I think that these others sort of, um, you know. Thematic concerns began to accrue, you know, in the story. But really, Jojo and and his sort of struggle with identity
1: came first. Was Parchment prison, which figures very strongly in the book, was that some a place that you'd always been interested in, somewhere you thought you might write about one day? Was mm-hmm. that always sort of somewhere in the in the ether? Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know. I I don't think so. I mean, I think. Um, it wasn't really i the the interesting thing about parchment is that you know i grew up in mississippi right and even as a child i knew about parchment prison i didn't know the specifics of like the history of parchment prison Mm -hmm. and you know and how and how it had been founded and you know and, and and I didn't know the fact that it had basically been a working plantation and that, you know, inmates were re-enslaved, or even the role that it played um, in the in this in the in Mississippi's response to the civil rights movement, you know, in the sixties. I didn't know any of that, um, when I was younger. But it but I think that parchment as a terrible place to be and a terrible place to end up, like that I was aware of that, and it it figured largely in my imagination when I was a a child. But I wasn't, um, I wasn't, um, I really wasn't committed to writing about it um, specifically, but I think when I began writing seriously in my early to mid-twenties, I knew that, you know, that I was like committed to writing about people from Mississippi, you know, and black people from Mississippi. And so I knew that I would have to, I guess, wrestle with the history of the state of Mississippi, mm-hmm. and in that way, I think that parchment prison is, is useful mm-hmm. um, because it embodies so much of uh, of the brutality and like racist, you know, terror that unfortunately has been has figured really prominently in Mississippi's history. So I think that, I, that it was natural that I found my way to writing about Parchment Prison mm-hmm. because that place represents so much of the brutal past.
1: There's other situations in the book that, that you say Parchment Prison you knew it was somewhere when you were a child mm-hmm. you didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. You could say the same thing about Leonie's situation. That's somewhere that no mm-hmm. one would really want to be. And mm-hmm. yet you enter her point of view and you seem to have so much empathy mm-hmm. for her situation mm-hmm. how did that come about that got sk- that position with that character mm-hmm. it took a lot of work
2: mm-hmm. because when I first be- when I wrote was writing the rough draft of um of singing buried singing I at least for the first like four chapters I didn't have much empathy for her at all and I s- actually paused um, somewhere around the fourth chapter mm-hmm. and I decided that I had to Take a moment to figure out her motivate Leone's motivation, and to figure out who she was and why she um, was abusive or neglectful. You know, to her children, to the people around her who loved her. Um, because I, because you know, I'm a mom, and it was really difficult for me. Like I found myself hating her, and not not feeling any sympathy for her at all. And so I thought, well, I can't sustain this for the, for the entire book. You know, I'd be doing her a disservice as a character if I continued to write this story while I'm feeling this way, because she would come across as a villain. You know, she'd just come she'd be very shallow, right? And so I thought, okay, I have to figure out what is at the heart of this, this dysfunctional behavior. And so then I thought, well, there has to be some great pain at the heart of this, of her behavior, right? There has to be that, that, you know, there has to be some sort of pain that she is carrying with her that is making her act out in the way that she does and to lash out at the people around her. And so I thought, well, and at this point I had discovered Richie as a character, right? And I discovered that I was, I had realized that I was also writing a ghost story in addition to writing a a novel about a road trip. And so I thought, well, what if Leone lost someone close to her? Like what if that's the pain? And you know, what so so I thought, well, it has this person has to be closer than a cousin because you know, because this this pain has to be very close to her and it has to be immediate, right? And so I thought, okay, she had to have lost a family member and because her mother and her father are still alive, it would make sense that she would have lost a sibling. And then for a second I thought about giving her a sister and having her lose a sister, um, but then, I don't know, there was something about Leone that made me want to write her as the only daughter You know, of the of this couple. Um, like it seemed right that she should be the only daughter of this couple and so I thought, well, what if she lost a brother? What if she had an older brother and she lost an older brother? And so I decided to try that out. So then I wrote forward from the fifth chapter on as if she had had a brother, I invented a backstory for him. I invented a history for him, and and then I wrote forward as if she had been seeing like a phantom of him, um, every time she, you know when she got every time she got high right, mm-hmm. and and I wrote forward you know as if he was she couldn't figure out whether he was a phantom or a ghost right, but I wrote forward as if. He were really a ghost, you know. I mean, I figure if I have one ghost, why not have two? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so yes, I. So that was the key for me to figuring out like how to feel sympathy for her and how to create like a compelling backstory for her. I think because I figured out like as I wrote forward and as I spent more time with her, I figured out that the reason why that you know that loss would have like haunted her the way that it has and why it would have affected her relationships and how she lives her life and how she copes or doesn't cope is because she has a character flaw, and her character flaw is that she can't sit with hard things like she can't sit with pain she can't sit with grief she can't con- and that what i mean by that is she can't confront it she can't process it she can't it's you know she Whenever she comes, um, whenever she enters a situation that's difficult for her to deal with, she immediately redirects to some other activity, right? Or she lashes out, and or she, you know, she gets high, or she, you know, she, I don't know, she uh, finds some sort of petty drama, right, to embroil herself in because. That's her coping mechanism. Her coping mechanism is deflecting. Mm-hmm. Because if she doesn't deflect, then she has to actually live with that reality, right? And she can't. Um, so that's how I found my way to who she really was, I think. Um, and that's how I um, you know, was able to make her like a complicated human being. Because I think, I've said this before, but I don't like to write villains, right? And if, so if I hadn't sort of figured out her motivation, that's all she would have been. I mean, she would have been a, bit, a villain, just a bad guy, right? Or bad woman, right? Yeah. <laughs> I failed if I've written a villain because there's no depth there, right? They're useless. Um, you know, they don't come across as like complicated human beings. And so in a way, I feel like they're like a waste of page space. And so while I don't think that you necessarily have to, it's okay to dislike, you know, your characters, Or it's it's okay to dislike you know characters you know in books that you're reading, but you have to feel something for them you know I think your feelings for them should be complicated, Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the ways to make that that happens right that 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 you feel complicated emotion about a character is if that character is a difficult or complicated you know person right and they have layers and you know they act in ways that are contradictory and. Um, so yeah, so that's why I, I try to do that with, with all of my major, like, important characters.
1: Sadly, we're sort of coming to the end of our time, so can I just ask you quickly about whether you're working on your next novel? Mm-hmm. And um, if there's anything You can tell us about it. <laughs> yes.
2: I'll go ahead and say that I am working on my next novel, even though I've been on tour for quite a while, so I haven't been able to put in the work that I normally like to put in. Um, recently, but I am working on a new novel. I'm actually working on two books at the same time. The first book is, you know, an li- adult sort of literary novel um, set in New Orleans during the height of the domestic slave trade. Uh, it's unlike anything that I've ever written, and th- so therefore, my pace, like my writing pace, is very slow <laughs> um, because every time I think I've done enough research to do a good job of writing uh, something that seems like a historical fiction piece, you know, I mean, it's all set in the past. Mm. I realize that there's something else for me to read. Right. <laughs> Which is a way of procrastinating, <laughs> probably. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm writing a book about uh, a woman um, who is sold south from South Carolina um, and then is marched south to New Orleans and then sold again. And one of the main reasons that I wanted to write a book up about that, um, about a character like that and about that time is because, you know, I grew up in Mississippi. The town that I'm from is around 60 miles away from New Orleans. New Orleans is like, you know, that's our big city. That's the city that we go to, um, you know, when we want to go to the city, right? (laughs) And I grew up in that area, and yet I had no idea that It was the capital of the you know domestic slave trade in america once the you know transatlantic slave trade was was basically you know outlawed right i had no idea that there were slave pens throughout the city like dozens of slave pens and that's where slaves were bought and groomed and sold inspected you know sold um i had no idea that they were called slave pens (laughs) um you know like pens where you keep animals um, I had no idea that, you know, that, I mean, basically today, they've all been, you know, destroyed, right? And that there are only two markers in the entire city of New Orleans that mark where these slave pens were, and one of them is in the wrong location, right? And so it's like, it was really interesting to me to find out that that history, in many ways, had been erased, right? Even though it was such an important part of the founding of not only that city, but also of, of America, yeah, the country. And so I really, I wanted to sort of bring the stories um, of those people back into the present, you know, and, and I wanted to introduce reintroduce it into like the current, you know, conversation that we're having about r- race and about history in America. Um, so yeah so that's the first book that I'm working on and then the second book that I'm working on which I actually haven't begun writing but I've been doing a lot of reading (laughs) for it um, is will actually be a a complete departure because I'm writing a middle grade or YA book that will be sort of escapist fantasy fluff but I'm looking forward to that because I think I'll need to work on that in order to sort of balance you know so I have some sort of balance and it won't be, everything won't be heavy, gloom and doom. So.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank Thank you.
0: Here's a cool fact.